You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, uh, we come to your word with the desire to know uh, more of your heart and to follow you by faith in the path that leads to righteousness, not just for us, but even for those who you send us and call us to, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, those in our community, those who we are, uh, we come into contact with by happenstance, as it were, in travel and um, in uh, just everyday life. And uh, those who you have even placed very specifically in our homes uh, and in our lives. And so, God, I pray that this moment uh, would be um, helpful toward that end. God, we look to your word and we ask you that uh, you would show us um, what you what you desire for each of us individually as well as corporately as we just consider um, the, the state of our society and our world and um, the, 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 the remaining call of the Christian and the church. Um, and so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for modeling and for leading and for teaching and for sharing your life with us. And Spirit, we thank you for um, regenerating our hearts and giving us new desires to walk after Jesus. And uh, we pray that even in these moments, you would teach us and convict us, Lord, about the things that you uh, would have us to learn. And um, as as the preacher, I just pray, Lord, that only your words would be those that stand. Um, and otherwise, God, that you would give us, um, give us grace in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of you know that um, I spent a few years traveling uh, to encourage and equip the church in various other countries. And I had a life-changing and a very groundbreaking and, and, and um, just a, a life-changing experience in a couple of countries the, on one of my first trips uh, to Rwanda. And uh, then again, it happened in Zimbabwe. In Rwanda, after teaching for a couple of days, I uh, had been walking through just some basic Bible study methods with some pastors and leaders from the city as well as from various villages that had traveled for some up to a day's journey to be there with us for a couple days. And after that, the pastor who had been hosting our team uh, turned to me and he said, you know what, I wanna give you a new name. And he gave me a new name and it was uh, in Kenya Rwandan language. The, The name was Mucho. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a big dude, so the first thing I thought about was, that's hilarious. <laughs> but the reality is, is he was giving me the name Mucho, M-U-C-Y-O. 
not mucho, like mucho uh, that we know in Spanish or my broken Spanglish. He gave me the name mucho and he told me that that meant light. And then I went to Zimbabwe not long later and after teaching and preaching uh, my heart out for the better period of two days. I really feel like the Lord is just with me in those times because these guys, again, are traveling, you know, uh, hundreds, if not sometimes, you know, many hundreds of kilometers, as they would say, or miles to get to where we are by foot, by van and things like that. And, um, you know, they, they just are hungry for the word of God. And so we spent a few days in the word. And at the end of this conference, uh, one of the individuals who had come out to uh, the, the conference, he came to me and he said, I want to give you a new name. <laughs> and this time he gave me a name in the Shona language, which is uh, the heart language and mother tongue in Zimbabwe. And this, the name was, uh, remember he said Simba. And my eyes perked up because I knew everything about the Lion King. He said Simba. And then he said, Rache. And Simba means power. Simba holds a very significant, uh, significant, you know, it's very significant in their language. I didn't even know that that was a Shona name that Simba and the Lion King had. And he says Simba and he said Rache, which means the power of God. And he referred me to Romans 1 and 16. And he, we talked about the power of God unto salvation for all who believe the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he just said that it was so evident in my preaching that that was who I was. And so I had these experiences and I think that I never really realized how being and growing up as an African-American in uh, the inner city of Los Angeles, I didn't feel invisible, but I definitely felt like I was masked in my nationality and who I was as I walked through life. And then I get to uh, the, these African countries, neither of, one, neither of them that I'm, I'm from, so to speak, but they, they received me with welcome arms and then they ascribed so much dignity and value and worth to me by their reception and then also by giving me, again, these new names. And those things have just been so significant to me. And today we come to a text in John chapter four. We look at John chapter four, uh, you know, after I had been shaped by those things, I was reminded as I was studying this over this last week, uh, just how much it meant to me to have someone to take interest in me that way and to give me a name. Now, John chapter four follows John chapter three, which is this very uh, monumental time when Jesus had been approached by Nicodemus. And Nicodemus uh, was a man who had a lot of prominence. Everybody knew who he was. He was a, a Pharisee, even a teacher of the law. Uh, he didn't just have a name, but he had a big name. And he came to Jesus. He came by night. Uh, because he was trying to, at least it, it appears, hide from those who would have known that he was approaching the Messiah or, or Christ as the Messiah, but they had been, uh, otherwise they had canceled him and rejected him. And so when he came to him, he's asking all these eternal questions and we get that, you know, you must be born again. And we get that God so loved the world. We get those things out of that discourse. And so then you turn over into John chapter four, and this time you don't have a prominent individual. You have an unnamed and otherwise referred to as an immoral Samaritan outcast of a woman. We look at John chapter four 
in the title of your Bible, you might see Jesus and the woman from Samaria. And as we go through it, you'll realize that there's not much more that is said about her. And so this time he doesn't just speak about the fact that God so loved the world. He now engages with her as the savior of the world. And it's the first time really that John lists out this intentional um, activity of Jesus to show who he is and what he's about. In this account, John brings this uh, second example to us. We had Nicodemus and now we have her. And he basically is telling us that all men and all women across every uh, square inch of the earth are worthy to be saved and that Jesus is the one who saves. Right. Jews and Samaritans doesn't matter. Now, he comes to a Samaritan woman this time and he goes to length to explain to us that that is who she is. And that will be helpful for us as we really consider it, because there's a lot of reasons why Jesus should have avoided this woman. He should not have been speaking to her because the Jews felt disdain for those who were Samaritans. I think you've heard me to speak on this, but just by recap, right? Here's the name of a few reasons. They were ceremonially unclean people, according to the Jews. They were racial or ethnically impure. They had a blended uh, race where they had married outside of their culture. And then beyond that, they were religiously heretical, right? So they did not hold to orthodox teachings. And so the Jews and those who were of the pure ethnic or racial line of uh, being Israel, they looked down on Samaritans. And they did not have anything good to say about them. And so they were to be otherwise avoided is what we would learn if we just, you know, as you peruse through the scriptures. But John says in John chapter four that Jesus had to verse four and he had to pass through Samaria. He says he had to pass through Samaria. This is actually a key phrase in John's writing. He uses this same word. It's from this verb day, which really we would, you know, some people call have even named their churches or certain theologies after that missio day, right? The mission of God. It's like, what is God doing? Uh, but here, you know, that, that is kind of taken from a Latin derivative of the word. But in the original language, what the day is, is just talking about what must take place and what has to take place that is unavoidable. John uses it all over the uh, his gospel to explain to us multiple times Christ's fulfillment of the mission of God and why it was important and why his life was given uh, to these things. If we were to turn back to John chapter three and verse number 14, he's speaking to Nicodemus and he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That's that same word. I skip over to uh, verse number nine, I have it in my notes. We must work the works of him who sent me is what he says. That must is again, the same word. Chapter 10, he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold speaking to his disciples. And he says, I must bring them also. 
And so John's bringing this up and it's a big deal. It goes on and on and on, right? And in chapter 12, the crowd is answering back to him saying, we've heard that Christ is eternal, that he would never die, that his kingdom uh, is forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? And then after the resurrection, you got Simon who would be Peter and John. They come and they are, are t at the empty tomb because they want to see for themselves. The ladies have explained to them that Jesus is resurrected, but they don't believe it. And this is what it says in John chapter 20 and verse 9. They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, if you take the whole book of John and you just read it through and you were to able to pick it up on the language that's there, the, the important thing about that is John keeps on using that word all the way to the end because he doesn't want anyone to, to, to uh, miss this, that God is not doing things by happenstance, that he's intentionally going through the world, through the world. And even when you come to John chapter four, he's on this unavoidable journey, something that he had to do. It's not just the shortest route. It's not just a route that he decided to take on his own, but it's something that he intentionally went about because he's on an intentional mission. And that intentional mission is to save the world, right? What everyone else avoids Jesus pursues. And so he had to pass through Samaria. That's all the background that we're going to do for today. I want us to look here at John chapter four, and I want us to consider three things that Jesus in having to pass through Samaria, Samaria and engaging with this Samaritan woman does three things. He takes interest in her. He takes the initiative with her. And finally, he extends her an invitation. We're just going to look at those three things. And I think the helpful part about it is that we can see that as he goes through and in this discourse, this is going to help us to think about how we should engage with people who would otherwise be outcasts, people who would be canceled by culture, people who uh, those who might be around us would say there's nothing redeemable about them. There's no second chance they could have. There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy and there's no redemption. Remember our short definition for what it what cancel culture is really about is just there's no redemption. It's all transactional. You messed up. And so I'm done with you. We're going to look here and we're going to see how Jesus inter interacts with those who would be canceled by the culture around. And we'll look at it in those three ways. So let's look at the first one. Jesus takes interest in her. Again, I'm telling us that this was a divine uh, appointment, right? That Jesus knew that this woman would be there. John chapter two tells us that he didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew all men and he knew what was in them. Well, that, that, is a, that, that has an implication for everything. That tells us that not only did he know what was in like those who were giving him praise at that time, but not really. And so he stole away. But no, this time it's telling us that when he had to and he must pass through Samaria and he went to this place that other people would always avoid. And he pursued this lady here at this well. He knew that this woman would be there and he knew everything that she was about even before he had met her in time and in space. I've said even before, as I look at this, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse four, he had to pass through Samaria and verse five. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. J Jacob's well was there. 
And so Jesus, wearied as he was uh, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Verse number seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A moment ago, I was about to say, I had said before, I realized we hadn't read the text. Here's what I want us to see. We can see that Jesus was intentional in everything he did, even sending his disciples away to go get food. He has sent them into the city to go get food. And he just sits down by this well, knowing that there's this woman who's going to come and knowing what her life is going to be like. And so he did everything on purpose, even sending his disciples away to be alone. And then he takes interest in a woman who typically never has anybody to take interest in her. She's most likely there. It's about the sixth hour because she does not want to be looked at. <laughs> she does not want to be seen. And here's the reality. About the sixth hour is 12 o'clock. It's high noon. And, 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 and if you know anything about the Jewish culture, many people will tell you that the women would always come out and they would draw a day's worth of water or what they needed for the day. And they would come out at dawn and they might come back at dusk. But nobody traveled through the desert, the miles journey that they had to go with jugs to carry back water at high noon. That's why she was coming out alone. And so she's coming in a lot of ways because she has so much shame and she's so much of an outcast that nobody around her would uh, would ever say good things about her. And so now she's she's essentially hiding and she comes to the well at a time where she knows the other ladies that always talk down about her, that know all of her business and know all of her dealings and the things that she has done. Those women won't be there at that time. She won't be passing the men who only have lust uh, to, to speak towards her or some kinds of uh, derision. Right. So the, the people who downplay her, she won't be be interacting with these individuals. And so she comes at 12 noon and she comes to draw water. But when she gets there, she's encountered by Jesus. And Jesus takes interest in her first by seeing her. And what do I mean by seeing? I just mean that he doesn't just like uh, look past her or look beyond her, but he sees her, right? Again, she's there and she's there because her reputation, uh, you, you know, is, is, is a person that everybody else looks down upon. People mock her, but they rarely do anything. But uh, they really they rarely make anything of her. They insult her, but they never take any interest in her. She's been canceled by the culture that's around her. And so she's a person who is alone by choice and she's used to being alone. And she comes up to the well this time with her jugs in hand, ready to get water and get back to her own business. But Jesus is there. And this time when he or when she comes out, he sees her and he takes interest in her. He says, give me a drink. Just even in those words, give me a drink. He's ascribing dignity to her that she's not used to. And it's, it's so, 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 so deep. We'll get to that. But it didn't matter what her shame had uh, had or what shame she had. It didn't define her to him. And so it, it wasn't one of those things that, you know, because of that description, he engaged with her or did not engage with her in a certain manner. Jesus actually uh, just gave her a very close welcome, even uh, initiating that he would be served by her. He initiated, hey, I want to share with you. I want to, uh, to, 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 to I want you to give me a drink. I mean, he's sitting by the well and he had been there. He could have got his own water way 
before she came, right? But it just describes to us that he's in this place and he's in a place of need. And then he draws to her and he says, can you give me a drink? What Jesus did at that moment is he had ignored centuries worth of enmity between Jew and Samaritan, his people and her people. He sparked a conversation with a woman and he even asked to be served by her. And it was at the risk of his own reputation. And it was uh, at the at the you know, he didn't even care about what her reputation was. Instead, he just showed you have worth and you have value. I don't care what everyone else says about you. You have dignity and you have inherent value and your worth is beyond measurement. And so he does what? He sees her shame as something to look beyond. He sees beyond all of her dysfunctional relationships. He sees beyond her brokenness, which we will read about her. Most of you are already familiar with. For him, she was a person and she was a person with dignity. He doesn't only take interest in her by seeing her, but now he goes and he ascribes dignity to her by speaking to her. Just opening his mouth and speaking to her. It doesn't even, it's not even just yet about what he says to her. He speaks to her and he gives her the dignity and the worth and the value that she deserves. As a man, he's speaking to a woman. Women were looked down upon in that culture by men. Not only were they looked down upon, but they were looked at as property. And not only were they looked at as property, but you never spoke with a woman in the manner of engaging in some kind of equality. But here's Jesus. He's putting himself even lower than him than her at the at the moment. And he's engaging with her with this heart of compassion. And not just as a man, he speaks to a woman. But how about this? As a Jew, he speaks to a Samaritan. There's all of this animosity. And he goes to her and he asks her for a favor. As a Jew to a Samaritan. Let's take it one step further as a rabbi. He speaks to an immoral woman. He doesn't speak down about her. You got all these cultural attitudes that are towards women in in Jesus' day. They think women are deplorable. They think that a, a, a Samaritan woman is even worse. And a immoral Samaritan woman is absolutely the person to avoid and to, uh, to, to down, right? To downcast, right? There's no such thing as an equal, uh, right or a woman who should be given dignity and honor and uh, otherwise she should be shamed, right? And so no self-respecting Jewish rabbi who's just coming up and has got this little ragtag group of some disciples who follow after him would ever approach that. If, If you don't want the people around you, your disciples included, but also the people around in the surrounding culture to to say, hey, we're done with him. He can't be really who he says he is because he talks to the. The, the down, right? The dogs, as they would have referred to her. And no person who was about their own selfish ambition and who wanted the culture uh, to, to see them as popular and to celebrate them and, and to, uh, to, 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 to raise them to a place of prominence, that person absolutely would not be speaking to a second class citizen. A Samaritan woman with a nasty past like hers at that time of the day at the well. But Jesus did. Jesus intentionally did. When he saw her, he didn't stop at Samaritan. He didn't even stop at her story. You know what he did? He saw a soul. 
He didn't stop at Samaritan. He didn't stop at story. He saw a soul. And he saw a soul in need of satisfaction and a soul in need of salvation. And so he takes initiative with her. He doesn't just take an interest in her, but he takes initiative with her. And we see that he says, give me a drink. Now, let's let's read what her response is. First of all, we have this parenthesis there in verse eight that we've already addressed. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so it's just Jesus and this woman. Verse nine says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Again, a parenthesis for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his Uh, livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, I will never, they they will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw again. He takes initiative with her. Jesus pursued her, right? And he connected with her socially. We know that. And it was regardless of the social norm. It was regardless of what the culture had said. And when he asked her to give him a drink, her first thing is, hey, your kind and my kind don't use. We don't mix. How is it that you could be asking me to serve you from my vessel? How is it that you want to put your lips on my lip uh, on my uh, uh, cup. The, the, the thing is, is that you see me as unclean, right? How in the world? Your kind of my, this is, this is unprecedented. There's a good use of that word. This doesn't happen. We don't mix. And what ends up happening is at that point, he shatters through the categories. He breaks down the barriers and he pursues her with the depth of affirmation. You are a person. You are a woman that's created in the image and the likeness of God. I don't care about what people say. I don't care what the culture has said we should do and how we should engage and how we should not. I don't care how people may have canceled you. I value you. I see you. And so I am pursuing you. John Piper, I never forget in his book talks about growing up as a person who was racist and prejudiced. And he talks about it's his book called bloodlines. And he talks about in 1963 or so when he went into a church and had this crazy experience. I'm going to read some of it to you. He said in 1963, the church that was his home church voted not to allow blacks into service. And he recalls that his mother was the lone voice on a Wednesday night vote. It was a Baptist church. And so they voted about everything. And she was the only person that voted no on the notion. Can you imagine that? What it's like to be a boy. And that's what you saw. He said December that year, they stayed at the church, right? And everything months passed. December that year, his sister was getting married in that church. And his mother invited a woman who had essentially been like a, a, a helper to them, not a slave. He, he's very clear about that helper to them. But it's an African-American woman named Lucy who would help with the care of the children, help with the care of the house. And he would, she would come over every weekend. 
they said, hey, of course, Lucy is family to us. She's not just somebody who works for us. She's just like family. So her and her whole family are a part of the wedding. And so they invited them to come to the wedding. And he says, I never forget. And I remember how incredibly tense and awkward it was when they came in the door of the foyer. He says the ushers didn't know what to do and they were about to usher them to the balcony, which had never even been used. And my mother, all five feet, two inches of her intervened and by herself, took them to, by the arm and seated them on the main floor of the sanctuary. Piper went on to say that that moment riveted his soul. It shaped him. And he said it was seeds that were sown in his conscience as he watched it unfold because he realized that the attitudes and the actions, right, that he had were an offense to God and even not just God, but God and his family. In his mind, he had seen that the church did not want to see mix happen between black and white. And he saw his mom say, I'm not gonna have anything about that. So she voted no. Months later, he saw his mom invite this African-American family to come into the church. And he saw people say that's not possible and that shouldn't be. And he saw his mom grab them and take them up to the front row. He said his mom literally <laughs> showed him what it meant that Jesus had come to save any and everybody, especially to break down barriers, right? And if we look back to our text and we move away from the illustration, Jesus is still on mission to save. John, John had already told us that he has met with, John, uh, with Nicodemus uh, just a chapter before, right? And so now he goes from that place to now he's meeting with this or he's approached by or he even approaches this unclean, as it were, woman and Immediately following that, uh, that, that encounter, he comes to a place where the words that he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 17 are now becoming real. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This isn't just happening. This is Jesus' own mission. This is Jesus' must do. And this is what the people of God follow him into. And not only does he initiate right conversation and not only does he cross a barrier to make a connection with her, but now Jesus, most importantly, sparks and initiates a spiritual conversation with her. Did you hear it? Now, all of a sudden he starts talking living water. She's thinking that they're just talking common and they're just talking about the things that are right there in plain sight. And he changes the subject and brings it over to help her to see things spiritually. I mean, talk about dignity, right? Dignifying a person. He put respect on her name that was deep because what happened is he turned and he says to her, you know what? You're just thinking about these things that everybody can see temporally, but I'm going to give you special knowledge. I'm going to talk to you about the spiritual things. And we see that that transforms her into a person who who leads many people from her nation to come and hear from him as well. Question, what's the likelihood that people will come to us and just start sparking spiritual conversations? It happens. It's happened in my life. But do you feel like that's the norm? Is that going to always happen? Just people just come to you and ask you very specifically about the gospel. No. When you take interest in people, though, and you initiate with them, what you'll learn to do, just like Jesus did, is you can you can see them, you can speak to them and you can choose to be served by by them. But then you also can use those as opportunities 
to speak to them about the deeper meanings and deeper significance that they have and the deeper purpose of their life with Jesus or in Jesus Christ and how God has even sent you to them to help them to understand that and to be redeemed and have the relationship with him restored. And this happens right then and there. He goes and he starts talking about living water, which is the symbol of new birth and new life. And he says, I'll give you this if you know who I am. And it's going to spring up in you as, as a well of eternal life, right? So you, it's, it's not just that I'm going to give you some water right now and you're going to have to come back tomorrow at high noon when it's really hot and drink again. It's not just that I'm going to give you enough that maybe you can stay away for two days. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you something that will satisfy you and save you all together to the point where you drink this water and you'll never thirst again. You think that you, you need the, the, the water and the bread. You think that you need something to satisfy you for a meal today. You think you need something to cook up for this hour. No, I'm giving you something that will give you life and give you satisfaction that will feed your soul forever. You see how he turned the conversation? He initiated with her and he went deeper with her. This is what God calls us to do, even as the church. And we'll just look at that by application in a moment. But let's look at the last point. He extends an invitation. It's kind of twofold, right? Right there in verse number 16, he just turns and he says, you know what? She's asking, hey, sir, verse 15, give me this water so that I'll never be thirsty again or have to come here again. Give me this water. She says, and Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband and come here. The first invitation is, I want you to go call your husband and come back here. Let, let's, let's have this conversation. And her response, look at her response. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman says, hey, sir, I can perceive that you're a prophet, right? Somehow you know about my life. And she goes on and she takes the conversation that he initiated spiritually and she goes on even deeper into it. Now she's intrigued and she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and, and, and uh, they say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, more spiritual knowledge that even her fathers didn't understand, her forefathers, right? He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people, not certain people, such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, well, I know the Messiah is coming and he's the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us everything. And Jesus, again, with another invitation, this time the most gracious invitation that there is, he just says, I am he. 
I'm the one who you've been searching for. I'm the one who your fathers have been searching for. I'm the one you've been hearing about. Jesus is the one, the only one who can fill the vacuum in the hole, a God-sized hole, eternal hole, right? The eternal separation. He's the only one who can build a bridge. I am he. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I'm the one who's sent and who the spirit has anointed to go and to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor and to set at liberty those who are captive to their sin. I'm the one who who is to free and to liberate those who are enslaved to their sin and even enslaved and oppressed in this world. He, she says, he, I mean, he, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. What a gracious invitation. The first thing he does is, yes, he acknowledges her sin, but what else does he do? Does he, do? he still affirms her personhood. Jesus is showing that she's broken and that she needs healing and that he can do that. That he is the healer and he is for her and that she needs to be transformed and he can change her life. He doesn't like sweep under the rug what her past and the, the, the things that are in her life show, right? Grace and mercy do include truth telling. I think it's very important, but I think sometimes we can, we can miss what's really here for us and we can read too much into her life. First and foremost, a woman did not have the power to divorce anyone in that culture. Remember, she is considered to be property. And every time she is sent away by a, a man and given a certificate of divorce, who just names her as the daughter of so-and-so now being sent away by the, the man of so-and-so, I mean, doesn't even name her, they're just sending her away. Every time that happens, when she goes and presents that she has a certificate of divorce and she's been sent away by one man and another man says, okay, well, you can come into my house as a second, a third, or maybe a fourth wife, and you can be used as property under, under my household. She's not going to that person necessarily as an immoral person who's just stealing other people's uh, husbands and the way in which we present it sometimes in this day. She has been sent away, literally, to be divorced. It, it literally means in that in that. Uh, culture for a woman to be sent away. It can't even be done by a woman to a man. And so Jesus says, you're right. You have had five husbands. You have been sent away by five different people. You have been devalued and dehumanized by these other men. You have had a sort of cancellation time and time again, all the way down to the fact that now you are with a man who won't even marry you. It's true, but I don't care. And so he tells her the truth, but he does that graciously and he does it mercifully. And he invites her then to tell others. He told her to go and call her husband. But verse number 27 says, just then his disciples came back and they marveled at the fact that he was talking with a woman. Go figure. But no one said, what do you seek? <laughs> or why are you talking with her? They're, 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 you know, they're mumbling under their breath. They're, there's cancel culture for you. Even among the church, his disciples are like, I can't believe he's doing that, but I'm not even going to say anything. How often do we do that under our breath? But anyway, verse 28 says, so the woman left her water jar. She went away into town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
And they went out of the town and they were all coming to him. So now she, a person who is hiding from everyone, doesn't want to be seen by anyone, goes and now she's telling everyone. She's, she's going to people because she's got a gracious invitation from God. She's met Jesus and had her whole mind blown and her life transformed. And now she's a witness of these things. It doesn't matter what her past has, done, uh, has been. It doesn't define her anymore. Now she goes and she describes that he must be. Can he be the Christ, the one who we've heard of? He told me everything. Come out and you come and hear about him. She told God, Jesus told her, go get your man. <laughs> and she, instead of going just and getting her man, she went out and she told everybody. She used to avoid people, but because she had been loved by Jesus and welcomed in, she goes out and she tells everybody, are you picking up what I'm putting down? The reality is, is that people who've been canceled by culture, people who have been called outcasts, people who are looked down upon, people who uh, may have had all kinds of past, who struggle in all kinds of shame, who are quote unquote unclean. When they meet Jesus, they'll be the first people and the best people to go and lead others to him because they, those who have been loved much, they love much. Those who have been forgiven much, they do what? They forgive much. And we see that in her life. She goes and tells others and Jesus kind of schools his disciples for eight or nine verses. And we'll skip 31 to 38. But I want you to look down at verse number 39. It says that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what? Because of the woman's testimony. She's somebody they didn't even listen to before. They didn't even take her serious. And now all of a sudden people are believing in Jesus. People who are not uh, ethnically Jewish, people who are Gentiles and who are to be looked down upon. They're believing in Jesus because of her testimony. Praise the Lord. Because her testimony was, he told me all that I ever did. And I don't want you to think of it as, oh, he's just a fortune teller. He's a person who you can just, he knows the future. No, he told her all that she ever did. And he did so ascribing dignity to her. He dignified her. And he said, you are a person who has been created in the image and the likeness of God. God loves you. And God has sent me as the savior into the world, in the world, not to condemn you, Right? but to lead you back to him. Here's some application for us. I think when we look at this interaction, we should see at least three things. The first thing is that we should recognize that every single person has dignity and is worthy of our love. Every individual, every single person, right? And in order to actually, this is just a little side note. If you think you're going to help anybody, if you think that you're going to come alongside anyone, in order to help people, the first thing you've got to do is ascribe dignity to them. You've got to see them and you've got to see them as a person. And in seeing them as a person, you don't give them dignity. They already have it. What you do is you affirm it. You acknowledge their value. People need to know that you see beyond their labels. You see beyond their circumstances. And you see them in their humanity. It's not about their past or their practice, right? It's about the person. And so that's the first thing. Recognize that every person has dignity and is worthy of love. Here's the second one. Realize that what others see as a justification for condemnation, Jesus calls us to see as opportunities for con or compassion. What others see as 
justification for condemnation, Jesus calls us to see as opportunities for compassion. I think that's very clear. We've just already, I mean, we've looked into her life. You see everything. She's already on the margins of society and the whole culture has canceled her. Even her own people have canceled her. And so she's all along in the world. But guess what? Jesus sees that as an opportunity to move toward her and to have compassion on her. Lastly, I want you to see that and remember that God is in the business of saving, not shaming. And the church must be too. That God is in the business and the church must be too in the business of saving, not shaming. Right? God doesn't refer to people according to their labels and according to their past. Even when you come to Christ, what you realize is that you're no longer called a sinner, you're called a saint. You're called beloved. You're called a chosen and a holy people. You're given a, a new name and a purpose. God loves us. And secondly, not only does he uh, not refer to people according to their labels, but secondly, the labels really do fall away when people come to know who they are and whose they are. You come to know who you are and whose you are, that God loves you, that he sent his only son into the world, that if you believe in him, you would not perish, but you'd have everlasting life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. You come to know that you're valued by God. You come to know God and be known by him. On a follow-up trip to Zimbabwe, I went on a home visit. We were visiting a widowed grandmother who was elderly. She was sickly and she was probably going to die soon. And she had taken in some of her grandchildren, one of which was an 18-year-old boy. His mother had died in recent years, which orphaned him and his siblings. And there's this thing in uh, Zimbabwe, there are many less orphanages there. It's not a cultural norm for there to be orphanages that take children in by the droves, but it's more so find someone in that child's extended family somewhere that can take care of them and that will love them and will care, and, and will care for them. And so they figure it's better for a child to be raised by a family member because they value love more than just goods. And so they, they really do that. And you don't see as many people being fostered uh, by the church or you don't see as many people being uh, adopted from Zimbabwe by the church. They provide for the head of the household. And then that, that is the way in which they care for those children. And so as good as that is, and I'm glad that the church follows in with that, there's also the side of you can imagine how humiliating that is for an 18-year-old boy. For an 18-year-old boy, even uh, more that is uh, trapped, not trapped, but 18-year-old boy who, because he's malnourished, he's more so in a 12-year-old's body. And not just that, he's HIV, AIDS positive. And so he's an outcast. He's not given a lot of dignity. Most people don't even acknowledge him. They don't even see him. And they definitely don't consider him to be a person who is worthy of the dignity that he does have. And so most don't even speak to him. And as much as I could gather, they, they, they kind of avoid him. And, and, and he's been canceled by others around because what? I mean, he's going to die and probably even soon. And so as I was visiting with them, I took notice of the fact that he was speaking in English. And so I left the grandmother to be ministered to by those who were with me. And I went over to him and I just said, hey, man, hey, what's your name? And he sheepishly looked away and he whispered, Simba. 
I said, Simba, I know what Simba means in Shona. Simba, that, that means power. Man, I was here a few years ago and they renamed me Simba Rashe, right? Which means the power of God. And I took him to Romans chapter one and I, and I showed him I'm unashamed of the power of God or the, of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And I explained to him that that was salvation for Jews and also for Greeks. It's for everybody. And I explained to him, you're created in the image and likeness of this God. He loves you. And Jesus Christ died for you. And I'm going to shame to tell you about that. And I, and I walked him through the gospel. You should have just seen how his face lit up. I told him, son, I never want you to whisper that again. In fact, your name is not just Simba. Your name is Simba Rache. And it changed his life. I'll never forget what it was like driving away and how he was just on his tippy toes waving and yelling. And he was so excited. He had a new life. That man made a, a, a profession of faith. And I don't know today if he's still living, but I know that he has life. Praise God for that. That is what it means that we see people. We take interest in people, right? We take initiative towards people and we invite them into the, the, the marriage supper of the land, the greatest invitation you could ever get. It doesn't matter that people in his village may not invite him to play, may not invite him over to a place where he can have a meal with them because Jesus has invited him into eternal life by faith in him through the gospel. And that's the, the attitude that we have about every single person. And so my hope is that even as we think through this, we will be looking even now can picture those who otherwise the culture would have canceled. Your family members would have canceled. You've even seen other Christians. Their cutoff game is good. And so they've canceled people. But God is calling you to initiate a relationship with them and to ascribe dignity to them. Carlos and I were sitting at lunch today and it was just and it was observable at the moment that another person was talking down to someone. It's just like, hey, Carlos just said, man, remember dignity. Let's remember dignity. Let's not be the people who dismiss folks. Let's not be the people who would just, you know, talk down to another person. Let, let's humanize them. Let's love people because God loves them. And he's called us to do the same, right? We don't dishonor people, even if they have a dishonorable past. We dignify them. Father, I pray that this message has been exactly what we've asked for, Lord, that it would be instructive to change us and that it would open up our eyes. We don't think about these things in theory. There are real people, there are real places, and there are real conversations, right? There's, there's real relationships. There's, you really do have your children who don't know that they are your children and may even feel like they're unlovable and they're unredeemable and they're otherwise unsavable, and yet you've called us to join you in your mission to go to them and to bring the good news of what you've done for them in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we look at the woman at the well who otherwise has been unnamed, but uh, you know, you know her name and you've given her a new name. May we look at the Samaritan woman and Jesus's interaction with her and may we mimic that and walk in your footsteps, God, to give dignity and value and worth to every person who we come in contact with and count no one out and, and, and not see anyone as so far out on the margins that they cannot be redeemed. Lord, help us in this endeavor and call us, Lord, to a supernatural love for the culture around us, that we would not condemn the culture and condemn the people in it, that we would not just join with everybody else at cutting folks off, but that we would be quick to forgive, quick to listen, that we would love and that we would be gracious. Lord, we ask for this by faith and because of the grace that we have in Jesus and in his name. Amen.